If you notice on the front cover, today is Global Outreach Sunday. And uh, normally when we do Global Outreach Sunday, we decorate the stage and all this kind of stuff. But we started to realize that the book of Acts is one gigantic global outreach focus. And so um, it took us a while to figure that out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but this text is actually one of those texts that I think is, is really a great text to get in the forefront of our minds. The fact that here at Golden Hills, we do have a focus on missions and the gospel, which is global in scope. And so we'll be able to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, so if you do have Acts uh, chapter 12 open, um, you'll see that uh, it's kind of an unusual text. And we're going to go through chapter 13 as well. You know, what's interesting about uh, missions for me is I'm not a missionary uh, in the classical way, but my wife and I uh, live our lives as missional as possible. And uh, we try to think that one of our goals is to understand the culture as best we can, to communicate the gospel as clearly we can within that culture, and to make sure that our lifestyle is not embarrassing Jesus or compromising the gospel. And one of the things that has helped us, or helped me anyways, envision this kind of um, lifestyle is from a book I read by John Piper. And uh, I had a chance to meet John Piper. I have a man crush on John Piper. I love John Piper. I love everything he writes and says. So anyways, um, he wrote this book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And uh, let me just read a little bit from Let the Nations Be Glad to kind of set the tone for this morning. He writes this. And by the way, this is the first sentence. This is the first paragraph, first chapter. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Worship in missions is the goal of, worship in missions is the goal because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of who God is. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from their own hearts, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And so therefore, missions begins and ends in worship. And for me, that has been incredibly powerful. Because as I think about missions and the gospel, I come more and more to realize what our aim is, is to create worshipers of God so that they may enjoy him forever. So, Father, I pray that you would help us now to have that focus as we come to this text. To see that this text is about you and it's about worshiping you and it's about giving you the glory. And it's also about for us as readers of this of having our imaginations inspired to who you are and what you can do, and for us to enjoy you thoroughly. And so, Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would touch our hearts in such a way that from reading this text we would encounter you, you would bless us with your presence, we will be filled with joy, but we will also be commissioned in that joy to go and make worshipers of all who do not yet know you. So do that in us, we pray. But before we go, God cause in our own hearts to become passionate worshipers of you. Something only you can do. So we look to you now to do it. 
for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So the promise that Jesus gave to his followers is, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And how God intends to be with us even to the end of the age is through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who abides in us, the Spirit who is God's presence for us today. That's why we sang that song. And what we try to do as a church is take the truth that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, crucified on a Roman cross to pay for the penalty of sin, that he was dead and buried, but he was raised on the third day to new life as the first of the new creation, as a symbol and, and as the reality of all that God promised to make all things new again, to restore all things to himself through the work of Christ, that he plans to build a kingdom and is building a kingdom even now. And how that kingdom is being built is through the message of the good news that all was good, then it was lost, but all is being restored again. And through that message, those who believe it receive forgiveness of sins, and they are included or counted in the kingdom of God. And that is what missions is. It's working with God to build his kingdom by inviting sinners from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and every people group to come and experience him for themselves, for their everlasting joy, and for his infinite glory. And the most logical and appropriate response to hearing this message is to accept it and to worship God because of it. That's missions. And that's what we at Golden Hills are here to do to come together as a church as we gather to learn from the Word of God, to be nurtured through the preaching of the Word of God, to express our heartfelt gratitude for the person and work of God, and then to be scattered amongst the globe and to bear witness to this message, which is uniting sinners to a holy God, something that only God can do. So this message, the good news of the gospel, is an invitation and that word of God, or that invitation, is what the Bible oftentimes calls the word of God. So this morning what we're going to see is this. That the word of God multiplies when two things happen. First, when the power of God is revealed through prayer. And secondly, when that power of God is received with the Holy Spirit. So the word of God, which is the gospel message, both proclaimed, both proclaimed and received, that is going to multiply as we do two things. As the power of God is revealed through our prayers and as the power of God is received through the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that this morning. I told you Acts chapter 12, but really we got to set the context. So I got to jump back a couple verses to Acts chapter 11. This is where Larry left off last week. Let's read this together. Acts chapter 11 verse 27. Now in these days... Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so what we know from here is that there is a famine. And what's interesting is in the course of how God is orchestrating all of this, Saul and Barnabas are in a church called Antioch, which is comprised of predominantly Gentiles, which means they are not Jewish by race, nor are they Jewish by culture. And there is a famine in Jerusalem where the church in Jerusalem is gathered, which is comprised mostly of Jews, both racially and culturally. Now, we understand that Jews and Gentiles oftentimes did not get along. 
They did not associate with each other. They did not play together well. So it is striking to us, as Larry preached last week, for a Gentile church, having heard that the Jerusalem church is expressing that they have need because of a famine, for them, the Antioch church, to raise up relief to bring to the Jewish Jerusalem church. That is shocking to us. That two people who usually don't associate with each other are now helping one another. And what we see, interestingly, in verse 30 is something that oftentimes we just kind of scan over. But I want you to see this. The Antioch church did send reliefs. They sent it to, notice this, who they sent it to in, in the Jerusalem church. They sent it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The elders. Now, we know from chapter 8 and chapter 9, there was a severe persecution that broke out in Jerusalem. A whole bunch of Christians were scattered all throughout Judea and Samaria. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem to lead the church. However, when, it's come, when it comes famine time, the relief that was sent from Antioch to Jerusalem was given not to the apostles as we might expect, but it was given to the elders which leads me to ask the question, where in the world are the apostles? Are they on vacation? What's going on with these guys? Now, what's interesting is chapter 12 that we're going to focus on mostly this morning. And you have to understand this, this sermon is going to be a little bit kind of fragmented because the literary kind of composition of this portion of Acts can be complicated for us. And here's what I mean. Acts chapter 12 serves as what's called a parenthesis. As you well know, a parenthesis is important information that's not necessary to the focus of what's being talked about. So let me give you an example. Acts chapter 11, it's all about Saul and Barnabas in the church of Antioch. Acts chapter 13, it's all about Saul and Barnabas being sent out from the church of Antioch. So what you have on one side of chapter 12 is a famine involving Saul and Barnabas in the church of Antioch. On the other side of chapter 12, you have Saul and Barnabas returning from Jerusalem to Antioch and then being sent out by the Antioch church. So what you have is like a bookends, this side and this side, and chapter 12 is in the middle. Saul and Barnabas on this side, Saul and Barnabas on that side. However, in chapter 12, you have this episode involving Peter most predominantly. So that means chapter 12 is a parenthesis. It's important information, but it's not necessary or essential to the focus, which is the church in Antioch and the commissioning of the gospel to the nations. You can see this in verse 30, sending uh, the relief to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. You see it in Acts chapter 12, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So those are the bookends. Those are the two bookends, with chapter 12 serving as... A parenthesis. So the question is, where are the apostles? Why weren't they the recipients of this relief? And chapter 12 gives us our answer. Let's read this in verse 1. About that time, and that time referring back to the famine and Barnabas and Saul coming with the relief. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So we're asking ourselves the question, where in the world are the apostles? Why are they giving relief to the elders? And by the way, Acts chapter 15, verse 2, 
actually identifies two separate groups of men called apostles and elders. So they're not synonymous, they're separate. How we can answer it, the question of where they, are, where they are, is simply by saying in Jerusalem the leadership was in transition. The leadership was in transition because James, one of the leaders of the church, was busy getting his head chopped off. That's kind of hard to lead a church when you're decapitated. I don't know if you knew that or not. So James, and there's three James that we have to interact with in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of John, who were business partners with Peter in a fishing industry. You can read that in Luke chapter 5. But there's also James, son of Alphaeus, who's one of the 12. And we don't know much about him except for uh, what church history teaches us. And then there's a third James who is the brother of Jesus, who did not believe in Jesus in John chapter 7, but after Jesus rose from the dead, we find him being the leader of the church in Acts chapter 15. Very interesting. So there's three James. This James is the brother of John who is the business partner with Peter in that fishing industry. He was killed with the sword, meaning his head was taken off. So that's one thing. The other thing we see in John chapter, or excuse me, Acts chapter 12, verse 17, is something happens with Peter, and I won't give it away yet, but something happens with Peter, and it says at the very last sentence of that verse that Peter departed and went to another place. We're not told where he went, but we will discover why he went. So there's a leadership void in the church of Jerusalem. James has his head taken off. Peter is gone. So there's a void. And in that void comes men who are called elders. And they're the ones to receive uh, the relief. Now let's ask, let, let's go and, and let's look at why Peter was gone. This is a fun story. So if you don't like having fun, you're in trouble. <laughs> Starting in verse 3. When Herod saw that it pleased the Jews to kill James, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Just an interesting tidbit. King Herod, he's listening to the pundits, and he's seeing that his approval rating skyrocketed once he, once he killed James. And so he's like, oh, that's a good idea. Let me improve my reputation. Let's get Peter also. So he arrests Peter. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread and Passover will be used interchangeably. It's a seven-day festival where the Jews celebrated the Passover. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So we see King Herod... Um, who is desiring to kill Peter because he got good reviews from killing James. I want to stop and think about this for a second. We know for a fact that Herod reigned from 41 to 44 A.D. We know that the Passover in 42 A.D., which is the time in which this famine took place, we know that uh, in 42 A.D. the Passover took place on April 5th. April 5th. And we know it lasts seven days. So if you add seven to five, you get 12. So we know that on April 12th, A.D. 42, that was the day that Peter was to be sentenced to death and to die. Now think about this for a second. If you were in prison and somebody came to you and said, hey, I just want to let you know on Tuesday we're going to take your head off. That, that might change what you do the rest of this afternoon. 
Now, think about this. Uh, when it's, you know, they tell you April 12th, you're going to die. And April 10th, you, your mindset and your heart may be in an interesting place. And not only that, but when you get to April 11th, you might even be in a different place than you were April 10th. And then on the night of April 12th, let's say, you know, midnight, it goes from 11th to the 12th, and you realize that your fate is uh, on this world, in this world anyways, is, is only hours long. Like, you're not going to live very long. How might that, how might you feel to know that you only have hours left to live? And that's probably what's going through Peter's mind. He only has hours left to live. There's four squads of soldiers that are guarding him. He might be, I don't know, nervous. <laughs> and then we read this, that in verse 5, Peter was kept in prison and earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod, verse 6, was about to bring Peter out on that very night, so just imagine that very night, the clock has struck. It's now April 12th, 42 AD, the day when Peter knows he's going to die. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Let me just stop here and just have you think about what's happening. It's the night when you are going to die. You are chained with two chains on your wrists and your ankles to two soldiers who are flanking you on either side. There are guards on the inside of the door of your cell. There's guards on the outside of the cell of your door. There's guards walking around. You are going nowhere. You have no hope of escape. And here is Peter, sound asleep, so sound asleep, in fact, that the angel doesn't just whisper in his ear, hey, Peter, you got to get up, buddy. He has to strike him. Now, if you're a parent here, you, you understand when you have to wake up your kids, each kid is unique. Sometimes there's kids who are light sleepers where you just walk in there and they wake up, hey, and you're like, whoa. There's other kids who are just, just they're rocks. You have to shake them, pour water on them, or whatever you need to do to wake those kids up. Now, just imagine Peter has to be struck by an angel in order to wake up. How sound must his sleep be? I, I, I find it shocking. Because if it was me and I was chained and I had no hope of escape and it's just hours away until I get my head chopped off, I might be nervous. I don't know if I could sleep. I can't sleep on Saturday nights because I have to preach in front of you all, and it scares me to death. <laughs> and then I remembered this. I was like, oh, Peter, Peter, John, James, all the other guys, man, they listen to Jesus talk frequently to them about not worrying about stuff. For instance, let me give you this, John chapter 14, verse 1, where Peter says to the boys, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Well, in other words, don't, don't freak out about it. Just believe, trust God, trust me. Naturally, we would say, why, Jesus? Why should I trust you when my life is in turmoil, when my life is outside of my hands? And then Jesus goes on to say in John 16, that I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Or in other words, guys, if you're in me, you have to trust me. You'll be all right. And then Jesus goes on to say, in the world you will have trust tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have affliction. That is a promise. But then he says this, take heart. 
I have overcome the world. So when you're in a place of turmoil and anxiety and you don't know what's going to happen, Jesus can whisper to you in your face, you just trust me because, yes, in this world you have tons of trouble and it's going to come from all over the place. But in the midst of that, do not fear. I am the overcomer of this world. So trust me. And I imagine that that was probably rolling through Peter's head. I just got to trust Jesus. He said he's the overcomer. He rose from the dead. What can stop him? Okay, knocked out. But as we continue, this story gets bizarre. So the angel wakes him up and says, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel didn't have a key. He just had a word. That sounds good to me. It reminds me when Jesus says that through the gospel, many who are enchained will be set free. And the angel said to him, dress yourselves and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And Peter went out following the angel. And he did not know what was being done by the angel, that he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought it was a vision. Because we know Peter in visions, right? Acts chapter 10. So this man is thinking, man, I got another vision. Here's another crazy vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them on its own. And they went out and walked along one street or one city block. And immediately the angel left him. Look at this in verse 11. When Peter came to himself, I don't know if he pinched himself or he kicked something. And he's, ah, you stub your big toe when you're sleepwalking or whatever. But he finally woke up and he realized, whoa, whoa, I'm not in chains. There's no guards around me. I'm a block away from the prison. And he looks back and the doors are still wide open. The guards are all there. And he doesn't even understand what in the world's going on. This is crazy. He says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. That seems like an understatement. Chains are gone. People are still asleep. I'm walking out. Gates open by themselves. And he goes, oh, now I get it. So when he realized this in verse 12, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other, uh, other name was Mark. Well, it be introduced to John Mark later on in the book of Acts. And there were many gathered together, and they were praying. Now remember, when Peter first got arrested and was put into prison, the church was earnestly praying for him to God. And we see seven days later that the church is still gathering and still praying. Not only that, but we see something interesting in what they were praying about and how they responded to this whole miraculous episode. Now, if you, uh, dude, this is so good. Okay, verse 13. He comes to the house of Mary and he knocks at the door of the gateway. Okay, so we know a little bit about Mary. She, she's probably a wealthy woman, probably a widow. She has a house and a courtyard and then there's a gate. So Peter's at the gate knocking on the gate while everyone's in the house, separated by that courtyard. They're in the house praying. So Peter, knock, knock, knock on the gate. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. She came out of the house to the gate, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but instead she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I imagine if I'm Peter, I got like bruises on my wrist. I'm knocking on the gate. 
Mary. And I'm trying to like, hey, hey, let me in. And Rhoda comes out, oh, is that you, Peter? It is me. Let me in. Oh, this is amazing. Hey, everyone. And they t- she takes off. Are you kidding me? I'm thinking Peter has got his mouth probably open, thinking to himself, what is going on right now? I do not understand this. So she runs away into the house and she reports this, verse 15. Or excuse me, she, she reports to Peter uh, that he's at the, or to them that Peter's at the gate. Verse 15. So the church responds by saying this. Of course, we would anticipate they're going, praise God, we've been praying for seven days. This is a miracle. Yeah. What do we read? They said to her, you're out of your mind. Wait, what? But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, ah, it's only an angel or it is his angel. Well, in other words, nah, Peter's probably dead. You're just seeing his guardian angel there telling you he's dead. Ah, he can't be there. What is going on here? When I first read this, I thought to myself, uh-oh, these folks don't get it. And then I started to realize if they don't get it, I surely don't get it. Because what I see in them is a lot of, of a reflection of me in them and probably all of us is the church was gathered to pray to God knowing that God could deliver Peter. He's got the power, he's got the know-how, and he's got the desire. But I think in the midst of their praying, they probably came to the realization or maybe they began to secretly think to themselves, yes, God could do it, but would God do it? There's a difference, isn't there? To recognize what God can do is a lot different than recognizing what God will do or would do. And so I believe that the church was probably fully convinced that God could deliver Peter. But I, I think they also were struggling with whether or not God would deliver Peter. And probably the reason is because God didn't deliver James. So they're probably thinking, James got his head chopped off. Peter's probably, he's probably the same thing. We just pray for him to endure. Hopefully he'll endure. So when he's rapping at the door, they're going, there's no way. There's no way. Why Peter and not James? Why James and not Peter? You see, theologically, God is infinitely powerful. And because God is infinitely powerful, there is no power outside of God that can stop God from doing what he wants to do. But not only is God infinitely powerful, God is also infinitely wise, which means if he decides to deliver someone, he knows exactly how to do it. And not only is he infinitely powerful and infinitely wise, but God is also infinitely loving, which means Whatever he plans to do and whatever he is going to powerfully do, he does it for our good. Whether our head gets chopped off or not, it is for our good because he is infinitely wise. Sometimes we pray for deliverance. I prayed with people for the deliverance of cancer, for the deliverance of painful experiences, painful addictions. We pray for the deliverance of that. And we should remember in the midst of that kind of prayer that God is infinitely powerful. He can do it. 
We should remember that God is infinitely wise. He knows how to accomplish what needs to happen. And he's infinitely loving, which means if he wants to do it, he, and whatever he does, yes or no, whatever, it is for our good. We can know that. And if you notice, as they're praying in the church, they're probably praying for his perseverance and endurance. They may not be necessarily praying for his deliverance, or maybe they are praying for his deliverance. Who knows what they're exactly praying But the reality is, no matter what they're praying, the ultimate uh, result is owing to God. As the Psalms say, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. But what he pleases to do is for our good. And it also teaches us, you know what, no matter what our painful experiences are, they're going to be unique to us. You see, James had his own unique experience. And God treated him and and worked with him in a unique way. He allowed him to be martyred. Peter was in a unique experience all to himself, and God chose to work with him uniquely. And so we can learn that God will be with us in our pain and in our suffering, in our heartache and in our affliction. He will be present with us. But how he's present and how he chooses to deliver us within that pain is going to be unique to each of us, and it's going to be up to God's will. And I think this is a great lesson about prayer. The lesson here is to never underestimate prayer. I think perhaps these, this church perhaps is just praying that God would, you know, give Peter peace as he dies. Maybe that's what they're praying. Or maybe they're praying for deliverance, but they don't necessarily think God would actually do it. And do you notice that no matter what the content of their prayer was, God answers it exceedingly and abundantly more than they even asked or imagined? Do you notice that? God answers prayer in this episode to a higher degree disproportionately to what the church is asking. Isn't that an encouragement to us? Because sometimes as we are scared to pray because we're like, oh, man, I don't know if I'm praying rightly. Because we think God is some kind of genie in the bottle that we just have to rub the right way. If we say the right thing, some sort of magical incantation, everything's going to happen. That's not how God works. God is a person. And God's going to do what he wants. And so we can pray whatever eloquent prayer or whatever simple prayer that we can ever conjure up. And Romans 8 says even sometimes we just utter groans. Because God doesn't work according to our plan. God works according to his. And that is a great comfort because he's infinitely wise and we're not. But it's also a great lesson that we shouldn't abuse prayer. I see it all over the place in certain Christian circles where people treat prayer as some sort of like I said, like some genie in a bottle stuff. Well, they're like, man, God is some sort of cosmic slot machine. If you just do the right thing, ching, 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 you get all your loot. Or God is some sort of cosmic Santa Claus. If you just obey, you know, then you'll get whatever you want in your stocking, new Corvettes and houses and whatnot. That's ridiculous. But they use this verse, Mark 11. Jesus tells the disciples, he says, have faith in God. And truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. At face value, you look at those two verses and you realize are that those verses, you look, and you see two things. As long as I don't doubt and as long as I believe that I have received it, it will be answered. Let me ask you the question. Were those two ingredients present as the church was praying for Peter? They weren't. These people were doubting. Why else would they say, Rhoda, you're out of your mind? 
And, and not only that, but it says, as, as Jesus says, you have to, if you believe that you have, past tense, received it, you'll get it. So if they were praying for deliverance, we believe we have received deliverance from, for Peter. We believe it. In the name of Jesus, we believe it. Knock, knock, knock. Peter's here. No, nah, I can't be. Do, do you understand what God is doing here? God is answering prayer beyond that whole thing of you, have to, you shouldn't doubt and you have to believe that you received it. Nonsense. God is answering prayer beyond that because there's other things we should think about uh, as we pray. Like let's, let's look at James and John. Remember James and John? Brothers. James got his head chopped off. Well, now there's another James who takes his place, the brother of Jesus, who is a leader in the church. Let's listen to what these two guys have to say about prayer. James says this, you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly. You ask to spend it on your own passion. That's why I don't understand when you hear pastors say, man, you just got to pray for an upgrade and you have to believe that you have received that upgrade and it will be yours. How is that not a spending it on your own passions? I'm confused. Or 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Notice that, what Jesus says at the prayer uh, of Gethsemane when he prays, not my will, but yours be done. You see, as we pray according to God's will, there's confidence. The confidence is not in our intensity of prayer. Our confidence is in the sovereignty of the one to whom we pray. You guys understand that? It's different. So let's not underestimate prayer. God is infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, infinitely loving. He will accomplish what he plans to accomplish. But when we pray, let us be confident in the one to whom we pray that his will will be done and it will be for our good and for his glory and nothing will be able to stop God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. As Jesus promised, you are in my hand and nothing can pluck you out of my hand. I love those thoughts. And then you see the opposite in King Herod. This church was dependent on God, and God answered them even above their prayer life. Here's King Herod, verse 18. Now when they came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Remember, there's a huge famine happening. And so the people of Tyre and Sidon are dependent upon King Herod for food. So on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat among the throne and delivered an oration to them. Now, Josephus, who's an ancient historian, actually writes about this event in his book called Antiquities. Here's what Josephus writes uh, in about 60-ish A.D. He says, Herod was clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous. He entered the theater at daybreak, and there the silver, illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in all of those who gazed intently upon it and him. Liberace, 
I, I don't know. But Herod walks in with this silver glimmering robe or something. And when he walks in, everyone sees him. They're blinded by the sparkle and glitter. And then he delivers this oration. And here's how Luke uh, records it in verse 22. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. This guy's amazing. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Uh-oh. You might want to think twice about having a jacket made of silver. But if you notice the, the contrast, the church is praying in utter dependency upon God. And Herod, to the people, is promoting himself so that the people can be, be dependent on him. Self-promotion. And when God sees self-promotion and pride at that extent, he has to judge it. And so we know from history that Herod died more than likely of an appendicitis. But it may have been because he had tapeworms that ate him from the inside out. Ah, enjoy your lunch today. <laughs> and look at, look at the conclusion of all this. James gets his head chopped off. Peter's in jail. The church is praying. God is answering their prayers beyond what they're praying, disproportionately to what they're praying, in spite of their doubting. And the word of God, verse 24, increased and multiplied. God will not be hindered in what he plans to accomplish. The word of God, the gospel, continues to increase and to multiply. End of parentheses. Now we have to go to the next section. So we saw here that the word of God multiplied when the power of God was revealed through prayer. But now we're going to see how the word of God multiplies when the power of God is received with the Holy Spirit. You know, Larry preached last week about how uh, in the church there's evidence of grace, God's grace to us in giving us Jesus, but also God's grace to us in giving us one another. Look at this in chapter 13, verse 1. Now we're flashing back to the church in Antioch. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Like Larry said last week, sometimes God, actually not sometimes, what God does is by his grace, he gifts us, the church, with people. And in this context, the people were the teachers and the prophets. That coincides with Ephesians chapter 4, which Larry read last week. That there is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then we have that same Greek word in verse 11, and he gave. So God gives by his grace a gift. And it is the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers so those are the gifts that God gives to the church, pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists. What are they gifted for? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So prophets and teachers present, uh, are a present to the church from God and they reveal God's grace. So that's one way God's grace is revealed in, in the church of Antioch because remember what Barnabas says, uh, actually, when Barnabas went in verse 23 of chapter 11, he went uh, to Antioch and he saw the grace of God and he was glad. 
Now, grace is a thing that you can't see, but you can see grace's effects. And one of the effects of grace is the presence of God's gifts of grace, namely pastors, teachers, evangelists, shepherds, that kind of thing. The second way we see God's grace in the church of Antioch is the diversity. Let's, let's look back to this again. That there was Barnabas. Barnabas is a native of Cyprus. He's a Jew by nationality and by religion. But he was raised in an island called Cyprus, which is predominantly Greek, which means he spoke Greek. He, was under, he understood Greek culture. The next guy is a guy named Simeon who was also called Niger. And the reason he was called Niger was because his skin is black. So here's a, an African who is in the church in a leadership position. Not only that, but you have Lucius of Cyrene, which is in North Africa, just outside of Tripoli. And so you have these two North Africans ministering in the church of Antioch. And then you have Menaean, who's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which means he's accustomed to wealth. He can move and shake with very influential people. He's high on the, uh, you know, socioeconomic ladder, so to speak. And then you have Saul, and we already know about Saul. And what you have in the leadership in the church of Antioch is a very diverse group. Some who are of Jewish nationality, some who are lighter skinned because they're a Roman uh, race, some who are darker because they're African, some who are gifted preachers, some who are gifted intellects, some who are rich, some who are poor. Do you notice the diversity in the leadership of the church? And diversity in the church, once again, is a revelation of God's grace in the church because he is making a kingdom from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. No one is excluded. Everyone is invited. That reveals God's grace. Not only that, but we see God's grace revealed in the activity of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep reading. While all of this diverse group, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Contrast verse 3 and verse 4. Who sent out Saul and Barnabas in verse 3? The church in Antioch did. Look at verse 4. Who sent out Saul and Barnabas? The Holy Spirit did. It's not a contradiction. Evidence of the Holy Spirit is here in the church of Antioch. Workers are being sent out. Here at Golden Hills, we're sending out workers. We have a whole hallway dedicated to them. That's evidence of God's grace. I know some people are like, man, when you see the, the evidence of uh, the Holy Spirit in church, what you expect is speaking in tongues and, and all this kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, we do realize that there's other gifts of the Spirit. One of them is administration. So when we think about a church being uh, faithfully administrated, we also can think, man, the Holy Spirit is involved in that. Also, the Holy Spirit's gift is preaching. And so when you hear the word of God declared faithfully and the gospel expounded faithfully, then you know the Holy Spirit is working. And brothers and sisters, in case you don't know this, the Holy Spirit is, is uh, alive and well in this church. The gospel is going out. People are being sent. People are coming to know Christ. And it reveals God's grace. And not only that, but the grace of God is seen in how it's received as we defend the gospel against those who attack it. There's a story that I don't have time to get into, but 
They go to Cyprus, and they're preaching to a man named Sergius Paulus in verse 7. And a guy named Elymas, who's a magician, opposes them. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. This is hilarious. Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, being Elymas, and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. And look at this. There's a grounding clause. Why he believed was because or for he was astonished at the what? Now, what we would assume is he was astonished at the miracle that Paul performed, but that's not what astonished him. What astonished him was the teaching of the gospel. You see, the gospel is beautiful. Everything was good when God created it. It has fallen and become decayed and it's messed up, but don't worry. God sent Jesus Christ to die and rise again. He's making all things new again for our everlasting joy and his eternal glory. It's a beautiful story. And if you notice what happens with this guy, he was astonished. Another word is he worshiped. He worshiped. The beginning of missions is worship. If you don't worship God, you'll never go. The conclusion of missions is worship because we seek to make worshipers of God. Here at Golden Hills, we are sending people out all over the place who are seeking to make worshipers of God. It's evidence of God's grace and the activity of the Holy Spirit. You know, what's interesting is a lot of people will say, you know, Golden Hills, we're not doing a lot of stuff. And I'm telling you, there's so much stuff going on, it's even hard to report it. A lot of times we just don't go and get the information. And so what we're doing is we're actually, if you have an email that you registered with us, we're actually going to be sending you a thing called the Global Insight Messenger, where we are going to send to you on a weekly basis all the stories about what God is doing around the world through our ministry. And it is startling. Let me give you one example and then we'll close. As you guys know, 30 days of prayer during the time of Ramadan for the Muslims is something we do at the church. Everyone knows that. In 2015, we as a church were praying and many churches around the world were praying during this 30-day period. And a woman named who we will call Sally, she got a vision from the Lord in eastern Chad. And during that vision, she actually surrendered her life to Jesus and made, her, made him her Lord and Savior. And she began to boldly claim, uh, boldly witness in the community. However, her uncle, who was the religious and familial patriarch of that region, in response to her conversion, has withdrawn, withdrawn all food and care from her family, burnt her children's school supplies, and has even abused her older children, attempting to bring her to recant her Christianity. This is real life. More recently, he even threatened to break Sally's legs as well as to douse her family with gasoline and set them on fire. But Christ has taken all of this harsh treatment and used it to draw many people to himself. So when her uncle withdrew food and care from Sally, Christ drew Sally's sisters, who we call Allie and Rally, to himself. When her uncle abused Sally's daughters, Christ drew the eldest daughter to himself. Hearing about her uncle's harsh treatment, even her brother who lived outside of the country was drawn to Christ. And beyond the family, the Lord has also drawn three other women to Christ because of her testimony. 
If you pray during the 30 days of Ramadan, God is working powerfully through your prayers around the globe. And there are people who are becoming worshipers of God through a little cluster of people in Antioch and Brentwood and Oakley who are dependent upon God to work. That is amazing to me. In spite of hostility and affliction and persecution, the word and the gospel goes out. The word of God multiplies. When the power of God is revealed through prayer, but also when the power of God is received with the Holy Spirit, like in the case of the church sending workers out and Paul confronting those who oppose the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the spirit is alive and well working in this church. And I'm so glad to be a part of it. Father, help us, I pray, as a church to see more of your grace. Your grace is made evident in the powerful outworking of the Holy Spirit. As he abides in us, as he leads us, as he guides us, as he comforts us, as he counsels us, as he grants us wisdom and illumination for the scriptures, as he searches the deep things of God and helps us to understand and apply them. God, we are your people, filled with your spirit. God, you have granted us power that we may be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And through that power and through that witness, you are drawing people to yourself from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group, making a kingdom. And God, we thank you because that kingdom will be characterized as a kingdom of utter unstoppable, insatiable joy because you will be there. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.